several weeks, we have watched uh, with, with great grief uh, one dominant nation threatening another. Russia and Ukraine are at war. Pride and the hunger for power have disrupted peace. News outlets keep the live updates rolling while we're asking questions like, what's next? Uh, will war spread? Who will stop it? Uh, not long before these events, we started the seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6. And the first two seals represent international conflict and, and bloodshed. I'm not saying that the conflict between Russia and Ukraine have uniquely started the last days. But I am saying that war characterizes the last days. Revelation has, has given us the lens through which to see these events. They, they fit within God's judgments on a world at ease in its rebellion. One way God's judgment falls is by handing people over to their own devices... He removes the restraint, so to speak, and he allows humanity's rebellion to run its destructive course. And yet even these times we saw are in Jesus' hands. In these times, Jesus also shows great mercy to the nations. The smaller judgments come, but God delays final judgment for a season between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return, God delays final judgment until the church finishes her witness. God commissions His people to lay down their lives to spread the good news about Jesus. Last Sunday we saw this mission as being part of the fifth seal. In this moment of international conflict, our mission as a church is still clear. We pour out ourselves like sacrifices in the path of love to get the gospel out to the nations. But that wasn't all we learned from the fifth seal. The fifth seal left us with this, this question, a question that echoes the cries throughout Scripture, the, a question that echoes from some of our own lips, how long until God avenges the blood of His people. And that question brings us to the sixth seal. The sixth seal um, will assure us that wicked rulers will not prevail. But we're also left with another piercing question. Before the Lord's wrath, who can stand? Who can stand? Listen to God's word, starting from verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale." 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So when we started Revelation, I said that the Old Testament prophets are some of your best teachers uh, in understanding the book. Every line in this uh, text, every word picture, every piece of imagery uh, comes from uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Hosea. Their prophecies come at at different times. Uh, They also concern different peoples when you look at the Old Testament context. But they all share this in common. All of them are describing what's known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That's why you see in verse 17, the great day of their wrath has come. So with the sixth seal, we we are getting a portrait of events that are are beginning the, the day of the Lord. The day when God comes to judge. Now, to understand what's happening, I want to walk you through the imagery here and then answer uh, the question, what is the day of the Lord like? And then I want to take you to a few of these Old Testament prophecies that John is using and answer the question, why does the Lord's judgment come? And then I want to relate this passage to other passages in Revelation to determine what the sixth seal means for you and and me. So let's begin uh, first with what the day of the Lord is like. What the day of the Lord is like. Verses 12 to 14 teach us first that it is a day when creation trembles and comes undone. A day when creation trembles and comes undone. Verse 12 begins with, with a great earthquake. It says in Revelation there's an earthquake. You will notice that occurs at the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl, uh, all of which are describing this, this, this coming of God. Uh, it is the language of what's called theophany, of God appearing, God showing up. When, uh, when warriors you know, brought their thousands of chariots against a city, the people in the city uh, felt the ground shaking. And the, the, the biblical authors take that same imagery and apply it to God's approach as the true warrior and judge. Uh, when God appeared to deliver the law at Mount Sinai, for example, it says the entire mountain shook and trembled. Exodus 19 Psalm 97 verse 4 speaks of the earth seeing God's majesty and trembling, mountains melting like wax before him. Ezekiel 38, 19 promises that the land will one day quake when God comes in 
in blazing wrath and fury. And we see the same thing here. When the true warrior king approaches for judgment, creation will tremble at his presence. And more than that, darkness and dread will replace light and laughter. Sun, moon, and stars. These are the heavenly lights that we're kind of used to just being there, right? From the dawn of creation in Genesis 1, God placed these lights in the heavens to remind us of His goodness. Jesus even says that the sun rises every morning on the just and the unjust. It's, it's a reminder of God's mercy. But when the Lord comes for judgment, verse 12 says, the sun will become black as sackcloth. Sackcloth was worn as a sign of mourning. And so what we're seeing here is that the sun that once brightened our days now becomes a sign of great sorrow. Also, it says the moon will become like blood. That's from Joel chapter 2, verse 31. Uh, Some of you are familiar with Andrew Peterson's Wing Feather Saga. There is a character named Armulan the Bard. And in the middle of a very dark moment, uh, someone brings him a ray of hope. And Armulan says this, Sometimes in the middle of the night, the sun can seem like it was only ever a dream. We need something to remind us that it still exists even if we can't see it. We need something beautiful hanging in the dark sky to remind us there is such a thing as daylight. That's what the moon is like. But not on this day. On the day of the Lord, the moon will signal bloodshed. Verse 13 adds that the stars will fall like the fig tree shedding its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. That's imagery from Isaiah 34, verse 4. So you think of the stars and you think of how, how glorious they are. And, and, and you, you, we, we, you know, from our perspective, there's a relative degree of permanence with them. Uh, they are so great and glorious that nations, Uh, would associate their gods with the stars. That's how captivating they are. And that's part of the point here is that when the Lord comes, the things that we perceive as enduring and unshakable, even godlike in their appearance, they are like nothing before the Lord's greatness. They fall like the fig tree shedding its winter fruit. Verse 14 says, The sky will also vanish like a a scroll being rolled up. That's also from Isaiah 34. Uh, When you're finished reading a scroll, you, you roll it up. And so it's a symbol of these things coming to an end. So also here, God's promise for the sky seems to be finished. The barriers that, you know, that we picture kind of uh, between heaven and earth, so to speak, 
They are now gone, and, and there's this picture of everyone being exposed and all standing vulnerable before the Lord in, as he approaches to judge. Also, every mountain and island will be removed from its place, verse 14 says. Mountains and islands were not just great land masses. They, uh, mountains, uh, for example, stood for kingdoms throughout the prophets. Islands housed... Uh, the distant peoples. And so the picture of all of them kind of being removed displays God's power and also how far his judgment will reach. Whether they are inland or at sea, no one's kingdom will stand when God comes to establish his kingdom on earth. And this kind of goes back to the imagery we saw from Daniel 2 all back of when Jesus' kingdom rises like a great mountain above all others. That's not all the day of the Lord is like. Verses 14 to 17 teach us that it will also be a day when humanity proves helpless and unable to stand. Humanity will prove helpless and unable to stand. Notice how verse 15 lists seven types of people. Kings of the earth, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, and then everyone both slave and free. So by listing these seven, this is Revelation's way of representing the fullness of humanity. That's also why you see people of power as well as everyone else. You see uh, kings and then you also and, and the free as well as the slaves. In other words, no one is excluded from judgment day. The powerful and the weak, the rich and the poor. Everyone must answer to God. Also, we see that no one can escape. Notice how they respond. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And that picture comes from Isaiah chapter 2 where you you have, uh, it's a picture of utter humiliation. You have these people who think they're all that. And and yet when the true majesty appears, they, they are scurrying to hide wherever they can. Uh, here these people prefer death under the rubble than to face the Lord. They are more terrified of the Lord's unveiled glory than they are of the cosmic destruction around them. Notice it says, they fear, it says, not only the face of him who is seated on the throne, they simultaneously fear the wrath of the Lamb. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus Christ is carrying out the day of the Lord. All of these Old Testament uh, pictures that you get of God coming... On that last day, we see Jesus Christ is the one who actually enacts it and brings it. And so to see Jesus coming is to see Yahweh coming. Yahweh revealed. Yahweh judging. No one is excluded. No one escapes. And then at the very end of verse 17, we learn no one can stand. It asks this question, who can stand? I think it's a question all of us should, should ask ourselves. Who 
who can stand? The implied answer is nobody. Uh, the prophets often uh, asked this question. I'll give you one example from, from Nahum. Nahum once, once asks this question. He says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord keeps wrath for his enemies. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And the implied answer is nobody. On their own, nobody can stand before the wrath of the Lamb. Now, why will God bring this, this day of judgment? Why, why, why such a day of judgment? And to answer that question, and I want to shift to looking at just a few of the Old Testament prophecies that John uses in this passage because they teach us why God's judgment will come. Some of them are listed on the screen. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can check them out uh, for yourself uh, later. The first place I want to point you to is Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19 and 21 is where we encounter this picture of people entering caves and rocks uh, and, and, uh, of the mountains to, to hide themselves from the terror of the Lord. But just before that, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6, we learn why God is bringing this judgment. And listen to what it says. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. They are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. And if you know anything about the covenant God made with Israel, they weren't allowed to do that. They were to trust the Lord to deliver them, but here they're striking hands with foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no need, there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. So why does God send judgment according to Isaiah 2? God sends judgment because he does not tolerate idolatry. God alone is worthy of worship, but they worship the the work of their hands. They are so impressed with what they can do with their own hands, with what they can make, with what they can earn, with what they can produce, that they're not very impressed with God. They were made to worship God, but they have traded God for money and the world's trinkets and military power. God is supposed to be their only Savior, but they have relied on political alliances with with pagan nations. Isaiah 13 is another one. 
Isaiah 13, uh, verse 10, talks about the stars not giving their light and the sun being darkened and the moon not shedding uh, its light. But, But if you look at verse 11 of Isaiah 13, it says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. What kind of iniquity? Well, he says, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So, so why will the Lord judge? Arrogance. The pride of man. The pompous pride of the ruthless. It's, it's all throughout Isaiah. You, you have those who, who in their pride choose to ignore God's ways and to walk in their own ways. And this merits God's judgment on the last day. Hosea 10 is another prophecy. In Hosea 10.8, we find people calling to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, they say, fall on us. John uses this language in Revelation. Why do they do this? Why are they calling for the, for the hills, the mountains to fall on them? Because God will bring a day that exposes the emptiness of their idolatry. They spent their whole lives investing in these idols and partnering with these other things, and God will come and it will prove them all to be empty. They pretended to be the Lord's people, all the while building pillars to false gods. And the Lord says this uh, in Hosea 10, their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. So we're seeing these different things. It's not exhaustive, and I haven't covered all the ones that you see on the screen there, but we're seeing things like idolatry, false worship. You're seeing things like self-reliance, depending on your self to, to be the Savior or what you can do with your hands. You're seeing pride and, and going your own way. You're seeing uh, religious people who pretending to be God's people, but actually beneath the surface, their heart is false. And this is why God's judgment comes. As a holy God, He cannot tolerate sin. As the only God, He will not tolerate God replacements. And therefore, He will come to judge idolaters, the proud, those who stiff-arm His word. He will come to end the haughtiness of man. And when He does, no one will be excluded, no one will escape, and no one will be able to stand. So what hope then does anybody have? Is that all there is to say? That God will will come in blazing wrath and no one can stand. And here's where I want to relate this passage to to others in, in Revelation. To determine what this sixth seal means for us. If we belong to those he mentions here... And then the sixth seal means very awful things. There, there is no hope for the people that we're seeing listed here in, in this passage. Not one of them will stand. And you might be sitting there recalling moments when, when uh, your pride, your own pride has shown. Uh, maybe you have trusted in the works of your hands more than you've trusted in the Lord. Perhaps you have loved something or someone more than you have loved the Lord. And if I asked, 
who deserves to face the wrath of the Lamb? I imagine, I mean, the answer would be for, for all of us, we all deserve his wrath. On our own, no one could, have, could stand. But this book was meant to be read in one, one sitting. Chapter 1 to chapter 22, read in one sitting for the church. And the question at the end of verse 17, who can stand? God does eventually answer that question in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What are they doing? Standing. Same word. Standing before the Lord and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How are they standing? Verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In your sins, you have no hope of standing before the Lord. But if you wash yourself in the blood of the Lamb, you will stand. You will stand with all of the redeemed. God will keep you from the wrath of the Lamb because He first gave that Lamb to die in your place. I want you to think of the cross with me for a moment. You might recall, if you're reading the Gospels, you get to the point where Jesus is dying on the cross. And there's all kinds of things that get described around Jesus dying on the cross. But one of them are these miraculous signs in the heavens. And they are signs that sound a whole lot like the signs we just read about for the day of the Lord. In uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 44 and 45, we're told that when Jesus died, there was darkness over the land and the sun's light Faded. Matthew 27, verse 51, uh, he tells us that uh, the soldiers that were standing there, they looked, they, they felt, and the ground, the earth beneath them shook, and all of the rocks were split. That's an earthquake, right? It caused these soldiers to say, surely this was the Son of God. Big time. Why are these things happening? Sun going dark when Jesus died. The earth shaking. Because those signs tell us what the cross of Christ is. It is God's end time judgment falling on Jesus in our place. God is shouting through his creation and causing things to happen because that's what the cross is. His sacrifice satisfies God's wrath. There is none left for those in Christ. And that allows you to stand before God, forgiven and forever singing with these people, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now what does this mean for you? Well, 
it means that by calling on the name of the Lord, your judgment is taken away in Jesus. That's how Joel chapter 2 verse 31 uses this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is your escape here. And so call on the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter who you are. No matter your religious background, no matter your history, no matter your ethnicity, your gender, your age, your social status, if you call on the name of the Lord, He will forgive your sins. He will deliver you from coming judgment. The works of your hands are never going to save you. You must trust in the work of Jesus. It alone saves. If you already belong to Jesus, this passage should make you give thanks for your salvation. Every judgment passage in Scripture should make you thankful for your own salvation. So give thanks for truths like this one from 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or Romans 5.9. Since therefore we have now been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. This is your song every day, believer. You sang it earlier. He took the blame and bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Don't dismiss the weight of God's judgment as it helps us feel the sweet relief of the cross that saves. The more you see your need before God's holy fire, the more you will rejoice in the Father's love, the more you will cling to the cross, and the more you will cherish His salvation. We owe Him all of our songs and all of our obedience and all of our lives for this. Now that brings us to another takeaway. Don't weaken commitments to Jesus for more security with the world. Don't weaken commitments to Jesus for more security with the world. Again, Revelation is meant to be read in one sitting. And it's, been, it's meant to be read to the church in one sitting. All right, the things you read in later parts of Revelation impact what you heard earlier in the book. And so you could consider how, let's say, the letter carrier comes to a church and he's reading this letter from John over churches like Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and, and Laodicea. What would the impact be for, for them. Think about it with me. In Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus confronted some of the church members because they were tolerating idolatry in the church. And then he goes on later to Sardis and he reads this same uh, letter and, and Jesus had some things to say about them too, right? We observed that their deadness was related to some moral compromises that they were making with the world. 
And then, of course, the last church is Laodicea, who compromised their faithfulness to Jesus, but they did so by depending on worldly riches and comforts, what they could do with their hands. And by contrast, you have these other two churches that remain faithful to Jesus, Philadelphia and Smyrna. But they're, they're the ones experiencing the most persecution. And so what this bigger picture is, is, is consistently showing is this. If you, if you ever want to escape persecution, then just weaken your commitment to Jesus and start getting chummy with the world. If you want an easier road, then start getting chummy with the world. Make friends with the world. Go for the more comfortable life with the world. Weaken your commitment to Jesus and partner with the world. Make compromises with those in power. Spend your life chasing the world's riches. That's how some of the Christians in John's day were being tempted. And isn't that how we find ourselves being pulled sometimes? It would make these relationships easier if I just didn't talk about Jesus. I could make more money if I just signed their papers about transgender pronouns. You know, we're going to lose our biggest donor if we stick to the Bible's moral high ground here. So maybe we just don't. You know, we're going to... The the government will leave us alone if we publicly pretend like we agree with them. And so these temptations go to... Weaken your commitment to Jesus to find security with the world. Now, can you imagine hearing those letters read over the churches and then getting to the sixth seal? The sixth seal helps you fight these temptations. The sixth seal exposes that all who side with the world, all who find their security with the world, with the rich and the powerful, they are going to be shaken. They will fall. And that will sober you up real quick if you're in Laodicea. Taking the fifth and sixth seal together, with whom do you want to identify with more? The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and powerful? Or do you want to identify more with the martyrs under the altar in God's presence? Between these two pictures, there is only one group that is shaken. The only people who are truly safe and forever secure in God's presence are those who follow the Lamb. And so stay true to the Lamb, beloved, and you will find more joy and riches and security and freedom than this world could ever offer you. 
staying true to the Lamb this way is also going to invite persecution. It's going to invite suffering at the hands of wicked people. People will recognize you as a follower of Jesus and they will hate you for it. But here's something else the sixth seal teaches us to remember. Rest assured that the Lamb will judge the enemies of His people. The Lamb will judge the enemies of His people. Most immediately, the sixth seal looks backwards to the cries of the martyrs in verse 10. They cried, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God then tells them to rest a little longer. With the sixth seal, though, God is reassuring His his people that justice will come for them. There's going to be a delay. More of their brothers and sisters will be killed. But that will, will not mean that God is indifferent to their cries. The delay should not be interpreted as God's indifference to your cries, beloved. He will answer them. He will judge our enemies and make them pay for their wrongdoings. One of the hardest things to do as Christians is waiting on God to judge. It is entrusting judgment to His hands versus getting even ourselves. We grow weary of waiting on God to judge. Sometimes when we look at the prosperity of the wicked, we see we, 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 we seethe with envy at them even. I was uh, reading Psalm 73 to uh, Anna the other night. She likes to hear the Psalms before tucking her to sleep. Um, but in Psalm 73... Asaph uh, confesses this when, when he, he saw the wicked prospering. He saw the injustice all around him. And, and he says that my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he then goes on to, to describe how the wicked seem like they're able to do just whatever they want with, with no consequences. Nothing happens to them. They're always at ease, he says. They always increase in riches. And he goes on and goes on and, and he gets to the end of reflecting on their prosperity and he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Are you guys weary? of reading the news and the wicked prospering or hearing the State of the Union address? You guys weary of wickedness? It seems like a wearisome task when we look around at our present circumstances And then have to keep waiting. Uh, Then Asaph says this. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. 
that you set them in slippery places. And then by the end, he's saying, those who are far from you shall perish. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It is only when we draw near to God's dwelling that we gain discernment. It is only when we draw near to God's presence that we gain discernment. In the book of Revelation, John has asked us to come with him into God's dwelling, into the heavenly temple. And from there, in the heavenly temple, he is giving you discernment of how to read the world and how to see the wicked. From God's heavenly temple, John discerns the end of the wicked. Brothers and sisters, the sixth seal should also come as a comfort to you. God has appointed a day to end evil. God has appointed a day to answer all your cries for justice. God is not indifferent to evil. He will end the ways of evildoers. There are many great ones and generals and world rulers, some of whom are pompously starting wars and oppressing others as we speak. There are political parties and presidents like our own pushing agendas contrary to God's ways, calling evil good and good evil. They will not have the final word. They may puff themselves up. They may win their wars. They may plant their colorful flags. But when the skies roll back, they will cower before the Lamb. Do not fear the coming days. The Lamb will end the day of evil. The Lamb will right all wrongs. The Lamb will deliver you from evil people. Rest assured in this, beloved. He will exalt His kingdom above all others. Let's go to the table now. That reminds us, not only of Jesus' death, but also of His coming again.